Hello, dosers. Today we have a great guest, Kyle Watson. He's a heart disease survivor from myocardial bridging. He runs about three to four races a year. Running is his life and very important part of his health. We'll get more into that a little bit later. So, Kyle, how are you? Great. Thank you for having me. Um, doing awesome. Um, looking forward to big snow down here up in Truckee, California, in the mountains, and uh, and living and loving life. Hi, everyone. I'm The Cousin. Before we start, quick disclaimer. Anything you hear today is our opinion, but we do mean well. Have fun and don't try to take us too seriously. This podcast is sponsored by Fibo. Fibo is a condition management platform that gives you personalized access to manage your medical journey. Stay updated with the latest research and news on your condition, wearables integration, food diary, medication reminders, and advice from your peers. All right, let's get started. Doctors have got to be scientists first, not doctors. They need to be willing to explore the unknown. They have to be willing to say, I don't understand that yet, but let's find out. Awesome. And they need to work with the patient and let's find out. Not We'll go find out and let you know what we hear, right? Um, and my, my doctors were amazing. They did just that. They said, let's find out. Like One interesting anecdote we came up with along the way when I would have issues and attacks, pickles were great. Um, high sodium content, uh, helps regulate blood pressure. Oddly enough, tobacco, chewing tobacco sometimes helps regulate it. Things that can help force one way or the other. Uh, top ramen is like a magic medical cure-all. I don't know why. <laughs> Call it placebo, whatever, but top ramen, not the cup of noodles, the package 10 for a dollar, buy it at Costco, top ramen. That stuff is medical magic, man. It, so it's insane. Um, so. I'm more I'm more shocked that uh that uh, a super athlete like you would even bother with eating that crap. How did you figure that one out? And also the tobacco industry right now, they're like they're loving cop. They're like, hey cop, can you be my spokesperson right now? Truly, truly, I was more shocked about the cup of noodles or the ramen before the tobacco. Everyone has everyone goes to a party every once in a while, but I grew up ski racing and been back then. That was the part of the thing. I was in the army for for a minute and um. But it's it's also just sort of a, a an experimenting process. Um, I don't eat super clean all the time. I, I joke that the reason I run up and down mountains and, and do all that endurance stuff is so that I can eat McDonald's because I love McDonald's um, and I'm a junk food addict. And okay. thankfully, and now I have a, a girlfriend who is helping me fix all that and, and feed me good food. Um, but it's uh, it's experimenting. It's doing some research. It's, it's it was like hey, as we started to understand what a vasospasm was, right? Um, and let's put it in like a, in a sports con uh, concept. So if I was racing cyclocross at the time, which I don't know if you're familiar bike racing, like road bikes on dirt where you like jump over obstacles and it's, it's insane. Um, and often in bad weather in the fall and winter, but it's a hundred guys on a start line and in about 300 feet is a 180 degree corner. And if you're not in the front of the pack at that first corner, you never will be. And so, yeah, it's a all out from the go sprint, right? And so you start in zone four, your heart rate's like through the roof. Um, Adrenaline going through the roof too. Absolutely. Oh, and I used to have this loop recorder. Um, actually have it right here. This little device that looks like a USB drive. This was right here for three years in my chest. It's an ECG, basically. That's kind of constantly flight recording. Um. And I was going back to the Mayo Clinic after that, and I first had to put it in, and they were, they were going through the logs and looking at it. And one of the analysts, he looks at this, he goes, what the hell were you doing on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. that had your heart rate at 190 for an hour? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that'll be a cyclocross race. And he's like, a psycho, what? <laughs> To, to me, to me, I I understand that you have a heart condition, but the more interesting side of this whole entire story is a marathon. What is that like? What on earth is it like to put on running shoes? Oh, that awesome. <laughs> That's crazy um, to me. I've actually never finished a standalone street marathon. I've done two in Ironman, but um, yeah. oh, so I, yeah, <laughs> my big thing is I've done a, a marathon. But I mean, I've only done only done an Ironman. It's like I know. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Christ. They're a little different. The expectation in a in the marathon, unless you're pro, isn't that you are, you know, running seven minute miles for twenty-six miles. It uh 
in some of them you're walking. I mean, like the very first one, very first Ironman I did was kind of where I discovered I had a problem. Um, at mile eight in the marathon, I was running along at eight minute miles and suddenly I had some kind of attack. I didn't know what it was. Um, my body shut down. Um, first it's my heart rate spiked and then my body just shut down and I went into this zombie like mode. Um, and it's where I, I learned a lot about myself and how my body reacts. Um, and, uh, in that, that you'd be surprised what bodies can be capable of. Um, I didn't just stop. My instincts were to keep going, um, and keep going to the next rest stop, keep going to the next rest stop. And for some reason it just said, keep moving. And, and I did, I kept moving. Um, I walked for 10 miles. Um, and then suddenly at mile 18, all of a sudden it was like a Coke and a smile and everything was back to normal. And I started running again. I ran out the rest of the, of the race, but I had no idea what had just happened. Um, I started working with the University of Washington and they couldn't figure it out. They just thought I was being weird and training too hard. They, you know, they put me on a treadmill and had me run for 10 minutes, you know, and they're like, Oh no, you're perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, but, um, that's, that's not right. I've been doing this my whole life. I've been, you know, I've been an athlete. I've been, you know, been in the military yeah. and things. And you have this, to put yourself wrong. to that limit though. Where it would trigger. Yeah, and exactly. You you can't you can't have a top athlete just run for ten minutes and figure and, and right think that you're going to figure right. it out. Now nah, it had to, they had to have put you uh, give you some weights. You had to run top speed, incline at forty five degree. Nick, you you feel yeah. me on this one? While he's eating top that's ramen. That's While he's eating top ramen. While he's eating top ramen. Yeah. Exactly. Do you think that running on a treadmill is also that impulse that a treadmill gives you? makes you run it's like like when i run on a treadmill i can somehow crack you know these faster miles than had i you know just run down the street you can turn your brain off on a treadmill and just keep up with the treadmill if you're on the road you have to every step you've got to initiate right, right. so the treadmill initiates and that could be the the factor right there that was again so that was a no-go so that's where the next thing they said was hey look the other problem is i have this big uh, 12 lead EKG on me, right? So I'm on a treadmill with wires and stuff bouncing around. That's not, that wasn't the race, right? That still wasn't realistic. So they said, hey, we can stick this in your chest and then you can go do things and we can basically get almost the same results and then you can actually do it. And this started to give us some answers well, or, or not actually, which was good. We, sh- we learned that it wasn't electrical. Kyle, I, I have to ask, and this is just that, they were following you all throughout. Like they knew you're like, whoever was reading your date on the back end, he knew like he or she knew when you were with your girlfriend and being intimate. Like, I knew when, it. I had to I ask. knew it. I had to I ask. knew it. Yeah. I, had to I knew he was going to ask us. I knew he was going to ask the sex question. It just, I knew it. It just seems like well, these Fitbit data things, like if you think yeah. about it, like in all your phones, they know way too much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, this is the most intrusive piece of technology, arguably way oh, more yeah. than a cell phone. If they know your heart rate and they know exactly when you're kind of, you know, intimate, yeah, or, well, I, they can assume. You use the word intimate, right? It's, it's a little, it's less. This, and this is where, like, so one of my big things as an athlete, I think that medical researchers need to spend more time working with athletes, especially like triathletes and some of these, because athletes love that stuff. They're like, they put it all up on Strava, right? I mean, like I actually talked to the CEO of Garmin about, can I bridge, can I sync this with my my Garmin and my Suunto, right? I'm like, can you actually, like, I don't want to wear a heart rate strap. I got this in my chest. Like, you know, how can we collect as much data as possible? And and honestly, I mean, some people do or don't care whether their name's associated with it from a privacy, but man, that's actually part of it. Like study everything, right? Don't be, don't, don't be shy. Don't be but like like get as much information as you can study it i mean i did an ecg study with it that for the um, eeg sort of the head thing right and i did a three-day in-house at the mayo clinic because they they weren't sure they sometimes it looks like seizures like epileptic almost i get like or i get twitches sometimes and so i lived in a hospital room with this big medusa thing for three (laughs) days while they're monitoring everything in my brain right and i had a few attacks and this and that but 
I mean, oh yeah, they, you know, you're like, and they got the camera in the room, like you just are a straight up science project. So, you know, of course you got to mess with them late at night and, you know, you're like, <laughs> get that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you got to mess with them a little bit. Well, for sure. That is so funny. But that's that's part of it. I mean, like, you're, that's a very noble endeavor. Uh, no, I mean, of course. I mean, we're being stupid, but that is a part of it. But, uh, it, but the way you describe it, Kyle, it's like, it's very noble because you do want to have, you, you want to make sure that you have a very accurate result. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. You're wasting the researcher's time. And you're not going to do any, you're not going to do anyone else that has a similar condition any good if you're, if you're falsifying it in whatever way you want to say it. But you know, that's, been, that's incredible. And thank you. There's, I'm so glad that people are willing to put themselves through that and be analyzed like that, because, you know, you are doing such a world, such a world of good. That's fantastic. Do you remember when they first started doing the, the grocery thing? Like you put your phone number in to get the coupons, right? Yeah. Yeah. Stores. Yeah. Right. And everybody's first reaction was, Oh my God, I don't want them knowing what I'm buying. Uh huh. And I was like, um, here, try this one on. It's about freaking time you paid attention to what I'm buying. Because when you don't have raspberry turnovers every other week in the freezer section, and you know I buy raspberry turnovers every other goddamn week, well, now your problem, right? Like, what's the problem with them having information about you if it can help make your life better, right? That's a very so, interesting argument. Nick, you want to – do you have a counter to that? Because I'm sure you do. <laughs> no, no, no. No, 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 no. Um, So, Kyle, I agree with you 100%, by the way. So, th- yeah. there's two different sides to this coin. And for, for some reason, my cousin here is trying to allude to something that it, I don't agree. So, I, what I don't like is, like, um, for example, what you're seeing right now in politics going on, where three companies manage, can, like, one way or another, decide like who's the president of the United States. They can absolutely. That to me is like way too much power for any one human being. Now, with yeah. that being said, the power of data. If we were able to just, you know, for example, what Apple is doing with being able to read people's EKG and being able to, yeah. you know, if if you can trigger when, when you know when it, when the uh, heart rate ex- ha- happened. Sorry, heart rate when the uh, heart attack happened. And if you can go back two weeks and see like heart patterns, if you can just find those triggers, that is huge. That's life-saving data. And that I think is people, it's in our best interest to share, right? I just don't like the idea of sharing like for biomedical purposes, let's do it. When it comes to, Mm -hmm. there's, there's certain things I'm okay with certain things. I'm I'm just mm, a little bit uh, against. And everybody's got your, your, your privacy, you know, kind of threshold. I mean, I work in information security. I'm an IT security architect. So um, I designed, like I designed solutions, one of the things around how you, how, so how do you solve that problem? Like, how can I give you all my data and you have no idea it's me? Things like uh, that. Um, identified and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's my big Shangri-La. And, and Apple started working with Mayo Clinic with HealthKit, right? And to be able to do that so that you can anonymize the data, but have as much information you start getting into the GDPR stuff. Well, if somebody really wanted to, they could reverse it and figure out that that's you because you're the only person with this, you know, unique combination of things. And and that's where you're like, okay, so what are you using this for? Am I willing to accept that? Um, and for me, for medical, it's huge. You look at some of the Scandinavian countries and they did like in Iceland, everybody gives their full genetic and they immediately learned so much about their genomes there because everybody gave a sample pretty much. Right. And they had an insane amount of information and they learned so much from it and not one person, my knowledge ever got, you know, derogatory effects of that. But I, well, thank you so much, Kyle. I, 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 I basically, I'm sorry. If you don't listen to the podcast, I try to, I try to get my cousin in as much hot water as possible and see how politically he can answer a question. I think he did a very good job this episode. So no. I'm, so, I'm really glad. <laughs> so if you want to dive into this a little deeper, um, for example, Apple right now, what is it like? Forty percent of the U.S. population is has um, some sort of either the iPhone or you know iWatch or whatever or mm-hmm. Apple Watch. And if you think about as that number kind of increases to that like one you know, one out of every two people, um, they can control practically 
the market from a healthcare perspective too, from like pulling data. So what would it be in an ideal world is that this all this data would be public, de-identified. So I don't know, you know, Claudio's data versus Kyle's data. I mean, obviously, Kyle, maybe yours might be a little bit easier to identify because, you know, you're right. Yeah. At some point, you could probably, that's the truth. But if we left this data open to everybody, you would have so many different biomedical companies, startups, seeing this data and trying to like analyze it from different angles, doing medical devices, doing drug development, doing yeah. et cetera. And, and just, but right now, having that data in one location is what really bugs me. Well, it's not even just one location. So it's actually a business plan that I'm, I'm starting to talk with some friends about potentially trying to even solve and using like blockchain as a cool technology to help address it. But um, it's also portability. So I've been to several different hospitals and you should see the amount of information and data that the Mayo Clinic produced on me over the few years, right? They that. ran so many tests. Their narrations are huge. And, and in some cases, I've had to have them facts, paper copies, like print out and then fax, paper copies of my records. It is a four-foot stack of paper, I've been told. A four-foot-high stack of paper because they can't translate the digital. So this company, there's three or four big companies in the medical world for hospitals that have record format, right? And so it should be as simple as, as there should be a centralized repository, like you said, a public, an international public secure place where you can have all your records forwarded to and then out of. So I can say, I want to give this doctor or that research clinic access to this part of my information done. Right. Right. And it can be that simple. Like it could be like a wrist. I think like road ID has things to where if you're scanning this, you have my permission to access all my data. Right. Or the data that I've given permission to, because if you can read this, I got a problem. Right. So tell us, Kyle, about the Zipper Club. So, so let's start for a curveball. Um, we've been having a lot of fun. And, but one of the things that, that I absolutely do want to talk about, since you're giving me the opportunity, is the one thing that nobody wants to talk about. Uh-oh. Yeah, and that's depression. Uh-huh. Um, Depression. depression. Okay, sorry. I, I, well, I, mean, I am. I'm as gung ho as it comes, right? I it clearly, like, yeah, you know, I got four pairs of ski boots in the background. I like to go jump off this and do crazy stuff. I'm very optimistic. I'm very, um, you know, I got a lot of hope, right? Like, I'm not gonna quit. I'm, I'm a no quit guy. But there are there's two aspects of depression that people with that two things with with uh, ongoing like critical illnesses or um, or my other hypothesis that I really would like to have studied is anybody that's undergone a major surgery and been under anesthesia for a prolonged number of hours is going to battle depression. And I've talked to people, not just that have had open heart surgery. I've talked to people that have had a number of different major surgeries. And, and I tell everybody two weeks at two weeks, be ready for about a depression that you cannot control and you cannot, so you can be the happiest person on earth. And I've seen some like before their surgery, they're super positive. And at two weeks, it kicks in. Um, there's times, sometimes your depression is just because of your limits. And we all get frustrated with our limits. And there's just days when it's more real than others, right? There's days when nothing's working. There's days when you've been hurting for two or three days or for a week and you haven't been able to get outside or do anything and there's days you're sitting there watching everybody else who do that. And that can wear even the strongest person down. Um, but nobody wants to talk about it. And everybody thinks that, oh, just be happy. Like, you should be happy you're alive. Or you can be, be happy that, insert whatever cliche, right? It, it's not going to change how that person feels. But then there's also just, there's something chemical that gets changed. And I think it, it dilutes a little bit after time. But when you're under a lot of anesthesia for a prolonged period of time, my surgery is 12 some plus hours. Um, you're going to hit a point where you don't understand why you're depressed. You're like, I, I, I am still lucky. Like I can still do this, but I don't understand why I'm just, I'm, I'm depressed. I feel hopeless. I feel defeated. Um, I put a post up on Facebook uh, a few several years back 
where I was kind of talking about this and, and I've tried to not only show in my, in my social media, my achievements and my good days, but I've tried to post pictures of the bad days. I post pictures of, of me having attacks and me like this and, um, former world champion, um, triathlete, Ironman. Um, Oh, why am I having a moment blank in his name? But he, he, he messaged me and he was like, his career was ended because he had to have open heart surgery. And he, his comment was, Hey, I really appreciate you talking about this because nobody wants to talk about it. He goes, I'm fully recovered physically. I'm back. I'm, I'm, I'm great. I have two great kids. Now that I'm retired, I'm focusing, I'm spending time with them. I got a great wife. I have a great life. He's like, but there's days I wake up and I'm, I'm depressed and I don't know why. And he goes, and, and, and I'm afraid to, to ask anybody because it doesn't make any sense. And he goes, the fact that you validated that and now and we're talking about it, whether we understand it yet or not, at least it helped. That's how you get out of it. You're like, I get this. You can blame the drugs. And even if that's things, just blame it and then write yourself a story out. Right, that this is chemical. I'm feeling this, and tomorrow I can wake up and I can feel just fine. I can be happy again, and you and you try the next day. And sometimes it takes a couple of days, and then you're happy again. You got to write yourself an out. But if you don't understand what's going on, then you don't know how to do that. And nobody wants to talk about it. doctors won't tell you. You know they know it. Pre-surgery, everybody's going to talk. Everybody gets depressed. Why wouldn't they do that? They're not going to tell you because they don't have an answer. And they don't like to tell you about things that they don't have answers to. Kyle, so let, let's dig into that a little bit. Um, I agree. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. And that's all I think yeah. the main purpose of this podcast is to find that elephant and talk about it. Because everybody kind of beats around that bush. And that it's, it's perfect. It's natural. And we should talk about it because that's how we grow. as, as as a community. Um, so you, you go in anesthesia and have, have you spoken to enough people that have gone kind of through this and that have had, because I also know that you're part of a zipper club, right? And I do want to touch, talk, talk to you a little bit about that, but I've been, I'm super curious whether or not, is it the anesthesia or post meds where you're taking to, for like pain control? If you have any of these pain meds, because you're going through like an exorbitant amount of pain post post surgery, right? Um, are those meds that you're taking for a prolonged period of time too, right? You're taking it some periods like up, up to a month or so. Um, so that's the thing. I was off my meds in six days. I walked out of the hospital in three. Right. And I, what I've done is I have talked to people. And it's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because let's rule that out. Um, right. That's what I want to ask. Let's, let's rule. That's where I was trying to go with it was. Can we rule one over the other? Have you been compared compared to those that yeah. never did it versus those that did it way too much versus those that did a little bit? How do they hear? There are a so lot of I, factors, I, right? So, how, what was your process into ruling this out? Not that I don't, not that I'm not validating your yeah, claims, yeah, no. but I just. So I wanted to find out, like the difference between anesthesia and let's just say regular narcotics, like Percocet and and Vicodin, right? So those are two, and maybe even Dilaudid is sort of the one that I haven't, the verdict's still out on. That's that kind of gateway <laughs> in between um, the Percocet and that kind of stuff. You've got athletes who have been junkies on that for a long time, right? And I know people that just use it recreationally. Let's not bullshit it, right? They don't deal with the same depression and it's not like clockwork. It's literally two weeks and there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things that are environmental that can contribute and sometimes it's a perfect storm. But, and it seems to be somewhere around five hours and longer where this starts to manifest. And the longer that you're under, the more pronounced that depression is. And the kind of the longer it lasts as well. Um, and I've talked with people that um, got right off the pain meds. So um, she, my most recent surgery I had with compartment syndrome. I took zero payments. I just used ice water machines um, and, you know, an alternative, and, and it was fine. Um, and I didn't, I, I still had a little bit of depression, uh, but I was only under for about four hours. Um, but it was, it was very small, but I haven't found any, this, this as being a, as near as pronounced for people that haven't gone through the surgery, so to speak. 
Kyle, I think this is something that now that you're saying it, like with these real world evidence trials that are coming out, I feel this is something that we could potentially, um, you know, really get to the bottom of. And it's it's a fair, it's a fairly accessible nowadays with data um, study we can do where you know you could get you know a large database and really pull that data from it um, to see you know is there a correlation between longer um, anesthesia or under the knife versus anesthesia right yeah is there that correlation i mean that's a huge that's super interesting yeah, it is interesting. Kyle, do you, uh, and you don't have to answer if, if you find this is too personal, but did you suffer with a depression before you were under the knife or, or is this something that was just new after the surgery? So yes, but it was different. So like I mentioned, there's, there's, I'm going to overly generalize the two. There is, I don't understand why I'm depressed. I can't come up with a reason versus I'm frustrated to all and belief and I'm angry and I'm this or I'm sad and then and depression. So beforehand, before I had the surgery, I mean the surgery for me, it saved my life. And in the two weeks after that, like actually I didn't have a phase of I mean I was I was stoked, right? I finally got the surgery. Now now I can hopefully start living my life. I had every reason not to be depressed. Um, I walked out of that place in three days, right? Unheard of. Uh, and everything was rock. I was out walking every day. Um, and even, even as I prolonged, like I had bouts with depression, I ran a half marathon a month after surgery. That's crazy. Man. Right. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, but that's crazy. What, right. Like, so what would I have to be depressed about? Right. I'm stoked, man. I'm getting my life back. Um, beforehand I was, I was battling depression because I had limits that I'd never had before in my life. Like, I've never had a limit other than a solid wall I couldn't actually run through, right? I was one of those kids that, like, if the laws of physics didn't prevent me from doing it, you know, I did it, right? Um, and now suddenly to have some invisible thing pulling you back, and you can't do this in this day. In fact, you, you, to go from one day being an elite athlete or being able to go out and run and do things at this level and literally wake up the next day and not be able to get out of bed, Kyle, let's go even a step further back. Um, would you say that you were prior to you finding out of your first episode when you're doing that triathlon or that Ironman, when you were, you were like, boom, like you are, um, you know, you're an Ironman runner. Like, right. That just, to me, that's like the highest standard of like badassness. like just truly, truly for me, it's like, there's nothing above that. Um, so when you're doing this, were you at that point depressed? At, uh, did you have any types of even like the a lingering or the slightest, or was it right after? Um, I mean, you want to go all the way back to childhood. Like growing up, I, I had some, you know, we all had difficult things. You know, I lost some family members when I was young. Um, I, I had some anger issues a little bit. Um, and my parents went through a divorce, all those kind of things. Um, I, had, I had IBS. Um, and some ulcers, like I had some gut issues, which we know I'm, I'm convinced it's all stress related. So I would say I was just, I was stressed and under a lot of stress, but I wasn't really depressed. Like I, let's be honest, like I never thought about, about quitting. Um, that thought never entered my mind, right? Like it was just, it was never an option, but I would be mad or upset or angry, um, things like that. I get stressed. But as I started, having to to battle heart disease and i started like as those as the episodes got i said longer or the periods like leading up to before i had the surgery um i was becoming more and more of an invalid so to speak um it was getting more embarrassing and more you know just overwhelming i was so much more dependent on my friends and my family um, on a regular ongoing basis um you know i had to be carried up out of the car or i'd have to become picked up on a on a run or a ride like the friend finder app, you know, was a lifesaver for me and all my friends were on it. And I would submit a group text. And if I needed something, I basically could, you know, the precursor to the Apple watch slapping the thing. Right. Um, my, my friend circle invented that. Right. Um, and they were amazing and, and I'm so lucky, but I hated being that dependent. Um, and it got, 
it got to where I just, you don't want to be a burden, right? So you, there's these balances. There's days you wake up and you're like, yeah, I want to jam and I'm super lucky with my friends. And there's other days where you're like, I'm tired of imposing on everybody, right? I'm tired of ruining every one of their rides, right? Like if, if they go for a long bike ride with me, there's probably a 30% chance it's going to get cut short. And that's, that's wrecking their training, right? And they would never, they wouldn't think twice about it, right? But you feel that burden and things like that. So that's something else that, it's, a, it's a, another elephant in the room, right? With people living with, with limitations, let's call it. I hate to call it disabilities, but let's just say with limitations. And how do you interact? Because we all are going to have different limitations, but how do you be part of a tribe and not just go be an individual? Like it's one thing to just go to your own thing and then you know live or die by yourself kind of thing, but, but being willing to and then trying to find that balance of, of living in a tribe, right? And allowing them to take on some of your burdens. Right. And that can cause depression when you're finding that balance. And, and there's just days you feel like you're nothing but burden. Right. Um, but at the same time, I've had some of those same people tell me, yeah, it's it's a burden at times. But at the same time, they're like, there's been other times where I'm like frustrated with this or that. And all I do is I think about what you overcome every day. And I'll gladly pay that tax all day long from the motivation that you provide there. So they're like, it's a two way street. And, and also these are, these are your friends, right? Yeah. And these are your friends and you guys aren't strictly just, you know, exercise buddies. You, you have formed a, a stronger bond. And part of that bond is dealing with, you know, we're not perfect. And we have, we have days where we can't, you know, be a hundred percent. And I'm sure that goes both ways. So I, I find that also just that story itself very motivating, and it and it really kind of like paints a good it paints a picture of just friendship in general. And thank you for sharing that. Nick, you had something you wanted to say. Expand on that. This is you guys need to hear this one. So the power of the tribe, right? And and I I firmly believe in the power of the community and that like you know let's, we won't go political with it and put isms on it, but 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 the tribe, right? So right before my surgery, one of my best friends, Katie. She had had her gallbladder removed two years prior to that. And they jacked up the surgery. They screwed it up. They didn't document it. They stitched it up. And it was backing up into her liver. And a third of her liver was full of bile. And she was in excruciating pain. And here I am starting to get really bad. I'm having attacks. I'm having basal spasms all the time. And our family, we've got Katie in and out of ERs, right? And, and our, our, our tribe is taking care of me. And taking care of Katie. And I mean, there was one point where we're sitting in, in the in the ER waiting room at Harborview. And and they're like, it's Harborview, it's backed up. And they're not paying attention. And, you know, I'm like, I'm barged back in there. I'm like, who's on duty? And I like, you know, force her in. And we're standing in there with her. And I'm having a beta spasm. It's having a heart attack in the ER. And my friends like prop me up so that I can put on a stoic face so nobody in the room knows I'm having a heart attack. Because it's Katie's thing right like this is this family right like they we all were there for each other katie we finally i called out to dr johnson and she's in the hospital they just keep it's two weeks now they don't have answers they're just trying to cover their tracks because somebody screwed up and nobody in the local hospital system wants to wants to let that out right and so i called dr johnson he's like take pictures of everything and dropbox it to me so we do that her husband at the time nico and i would do that and he's like, hey, look, my mentor happens to be a liver specialist. Will Katie come out and let the Mayo Clinic take a stab? And they, they rolled the dice. So we put Katie and Nico on a plane the next morning for Minnesota. And she went in through the ER. They checked her in. Well, that next day, while they're flying to Minnesota, I had a massive, massive attack. And I was on the phone with, with Mayo Clinic. And I'm sitting there. I had a flight booked at 6 a.m. the next morning. Had Harborview on standby to perform the surgery. And literally, we ended up, they put me on the flight in the morning. Nico picked me up at the other end. And Katie and I, she had her surgery the day before I, but we basically had our, our December, our Christmas holiday. We spent having side-by surgeries at the Mayo Clinic. Weird, crazy-ass surgery. She had a jujuectomy, if you've ever heard of that. And there's a funny mouthful. But but this is this is the tribe. And, and, and that that family... You know, we even the two of us being there together, we're able to help each other. Like, 
you know, she came after hers. She was the first one wheeled in. I'll never forget that hug. That's one of the most amazing hugs I've ever had in my life. Seeing her again, we both made it through, right? And then my motivation to walk, I couldn't walk to the front desk the next day. Talk about humming, but I wanted to go visit Katie. And so I kept walking until I could walk over to see Katie, and who was down the hall and kind of in the next building. But, you know, we got home and, and our community took parents taking care of us, right? Um, and that's, that's the thing. Like, you can get isolated real quick. And there's like a honeymoon phase too. And that's like that two-week period. That's where even with the best tribe, suddenly everybody's got to get back to work, right? Right. And everybody else is kind of getting back to normal. But you're not recovered yet. And you're not quite there yet. And you're home alone. And you're trying to be all super self-sufficient. But it's that moment. And that's when, and that's when luckily my tribe saw that and figured that out. And I got real depressed. And they're like, look, we realized that, yeah, we all got back to you, but you're not on the same schedule. So they did. They took turns. They put it and they made the effort, right? And I, I, I wouldn't probably be here if it had, wasn't from them and it's not from the heart disease. I would have quit. It was that bad. Um, and, and that's a scary thing to say for someone you know, as proud as, as I am to say I would have quit. I was ready to quit. And, and they stopped me. And they gave me a reason not to, and they supported me and they made it okay. And, and we've all gone through stuff since then and before then, and that power of that tribe and, and, and having friends and not isolating, we've all gotten through a whole lot of crazy stuff together. So thank you for sharing that. That's, that's beautiful. That is, that's huge. And I know I wish my tribe was, I mean, obviously you, you don't want to stress test the, the tribe, but I wish no. if if it does ever come to it that my tribe would be half as uh, strong as yours. I'm not pointing any fingers at the at my co. Uh, I, I knew it. I knew it. We don't all live together in the same place, and our bonds aren't the same. But but you, I think part of it is if you're open to it, if right. you're willing to be part of a tribe, you can find people wherever you are, when you need them. And there are people in your life and you're going to be in their life for a short period and some for a long period, right? And that's the whole power of community, right? That's the whole power of also kind yeah. of being, joining these communities of people that also can kind of speak to your pain a little bit, um, right? And, and and that kind of brings us to that zipper club uh, that yes. we, we spoke about. I mean, I know that's not maybe specifically the tribe you're speaking about, but that kind of does loop in right it, it absolutely so the zipper zipper club is is um it's a nickname it's become a hashtag um it refers to the eight inch scar down our chest um for open heart surgery um and so it looks kind of like a zipper like you've been unzipped but here's the, the thing i think social media for all the bad stuff that we also just watched in the whole political stuff like it can be hugely you know demonstrative and horrible but at the same time Social media has done stuff that nothing in medical science can do. And medical research hasn't been able to, to recreate is you can put a, a hashtag like zipper club up and we can find each other. You give me, tell me there's no other way that you can connect. I could connect with open heart surgery, people about to, or have just had it all over the world that easily. And I speak with people probably on average, every couple of weeks, I get a new DM of somebody that's either, you know, husband or wife or son, or they're about to, or they've gone through, um, just reaching out to talk that's and awesome. ask questions that's or awesome. just get to know us. And, or the, the scars are beautiful project, um, that my friend Brigida is doing and amazing. You guys should talk to her. Her story is incredible. And that project has brought people together all over the world. And, and we form a support community for each other where we can talk. It's a safe place to talk to people that you know are going through what you're going through. Um, you know, we grieve for each other when we lose members. Um, it's a global support when, when one of us doesn't make it. Um, and it's a safe place to grieve for that as well. Um, but we've learned a lot. We ask questions. We put it out there. Hey, what is this your experience? Is that yours? And we've been able to learn more about our own condition. Like the, the myocardial bridge, we have a Facebook group that's now got several hundred members across 
all over the world. And the we're able to pull together analysis that no single hospital can because they don't have those numbers. Right, they don't. That's, right. the, that's the power of this is back. There is a huge back to the data that. conversation. And yeah, they can't ask that many you know, myocardial bridge patients questions that we're that we're asking each other. But what what I really like about it is Zipper Club, and specifically, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle. Here, it's specifically for people, for the most part, for people that have been in open heart surgery, right? Yeah, here's probably the other big stigmatism. So it's extremely important for women, right? And for guys, scars are rad, right? Like I'm covering the scars. It just makes you look like a badass. I got tattoos and scars, right? <laughs> I was, was going to say, horrible, I saw a video of you. You're like, like, damn, the dude's like a beast. There, You wouldn't believe the stories I've heard from women about scars, like especially this, like on dates with guys, and they're just like staring down at their chest. and and. And so that stigmatism around scars and even guys like I was kind of worried, like I'm actually embarrassed. My scar is so thin. Um, it's embarrassing. I wish it was actually a little more pronounced. Um, I, the chief of, of, uh, of plastic surgery in the mail was who opened and closed me. Long story short, Dr. Johnson was, is a plastics. He's the, the world's best reconstructive surgeon on earth and called in a favor. And I'm almost embarrassed now, but going into it, you're worried. Am I going to have this big old thing? And how's this going to change my life? Like you want to pretend you don't care about how you look this or that, but you look at that in the mirror every day. And so Zipper Club has given us a way, both men and women, not just women to talk to each other and say, hey, it's okay. I've got a scar. You got a scar. Let's, we're all right. It's also us guys saying, and other people, men saying, no, I think that's damn sexy. Like, I think that's powerful. Like that scar to me, I want to know the story. I want to know what you've been through. And I know you've been through something. So if you've got a zipper, hey man, that's a whole lot of points in my book. If you've got scars, you're you have things you've been through things that other people haven't, and you're you're a known good commodity, so to speak, right? That is those are those are metals. They might as well be metals, right? right, right, Not, right. You got a story. Right. So changing that paradigm and changing that stigmatism around scars, that's why I love what Virginia's been doing. She's doing it with young children as well, kids that have to grow up with scars i got mine when i was in my late 30s but and a lot of people they either have it as an older adult or as an infant like you know i sat there i met kids that have been through 14 surgeries and you're just like oh i can't bitch i had no right to bitch i've been through a few surgeries but you look at some of these kids and you just the other thing about that zipper club is you can be as inspiring as you want like i i Consider myself a good inspiration to a lot of people, but man, there's days I need inspiration, right? There are a lot of days when, when I can't inspire myself. Yeah, I can look out and I can find, I can tap into people uh, at somebody new in, in an instant, right? That was just like, okay, damn, that kid did it or that gal did it. And, and yeah, check yourself, Kyle, right? Like, it's, it's awesome. Like, it's humbling. Kyle, um, I think we're about, we're about ending the, the near the end of the, the show. I had a question. Can you can you tell us what it's like to, and this might be, you know, you might not want to answer this question, but can you tell us what it's like to experience an attack or what somebody could, or, or let's say what a attack is like? Because I'm very curious about that. I don't know if you want to relive that though. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I go through that. You can't, I will answer any question because um, it, it also does help people. Um, doesn't give me any good hyphens. So for me, it can be scary. And Honestly, it's hard for people to watch. And, and the other support group really quickly out that I'll I want to mention real fast is 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 that tribe is everybody else. And they need support too. Because they need help and they need to be able to talk to each other about people that live with people that have critical illnesses. That's a whole other topic, maybe for a whole other podcast, but um, but in the medical world ignores them completely, right? Like so an attack for me, what it means is is I'm having a vasospasm, which means one or multiple of my arteries or major vessels is collapsing um, or is blasting wide open and my blood pressure is dropping, but I'm not getting enough blood flow to major organs. Now that could just be like my arm, my right arm. Everybody thinks a heart attacks is your left. Well, for me, my vascular structure in the right arm is the weaker one or more prone. And so it'll just go limp or it'll twitch and I'll look like I've got Parkinson's. Um, sometimes I'll just get like my batteries are low and like I'm fatigued or parts of my body aren't working very well. 
Um, like in races, I've had to stick my arm in my, my belt or like, or kind of just stick it in my shorts and to support it like a sling and to keep going until it wakes back up again. Um, it'll hurt. I mean, it hurts. You're trying to shove, you know, you're, you're pinching off a hose um, and there's a lot of pressure there. So there's pain. Um, sometimes it's pain in the chest. Sometimes it's pain in the arms, legs. Um, and those are all the worst. You get dizzy and then it's in the head. Those are the worst. They're essentially TIA strokes. They're mini strokes. They're not ischemic in my case. Um, they joke that I'm the Wolverine because I don't have any real evidential ischemia in the heart or in the brain per se, although I have slight telltales. I have a slightly asymmetric um, smile and, and a little bit of a, of a droopy face sometimes. Um, if you do a flip through social media, you can see my smile degrade and become more asymmetrical over the years. Um, but in the head, it, it hurts like hell. Or you'll literally just drop in out of consciousness. Like they'll think you fell asleep. Um, they think you're just falling asleep and you're literally just running on absolute bare minimum. Your body goes into absolute preservation mode. So it shuts all non-essential systems down. Um, you get cognitive drop off. That's the most embarrassing and the worst. You get dumb. Um, and you, the horrible part is it's kind of like, you know, when you're in a coma, you don't know whether they can hear you. So I'm going to tell you from the backside of the coma type thing, I know I'm dumb. I know I can't think. I know that I should be able to know that one example was I was in a restaurant with my, with my parents um, uh, and at the time and I was in the middle of, of taking a bite and suddenly everything stopped. Like it hit hard and I'm looking at this, this fork with some food on it and I almost burst into tears because I was so embarrassed. I didn't know what to do with this. I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I was in a restaurant, I knew there's a bunch of people and, but I just, didn't know what I was supposed to do next. Suddenly everything stopped and I didn't know what happened. You can't remember names like memory gets like really bad. And the cognitive drop off is just part of your brain saying, Hey, we're preserving blood flow to the parts of the brain that keep all the, the you know, essential organs going. Um, and that's frustrating. Um, my memories is horrible. Sometimes like my short term memory kind of sucks from having all of these, you know, TIAs, um, it can get frustrating. It's, it's painful. Um, and there's not much you can do. You know, you can pop a nitroglycerin and try and blast it open sometimes, but I'm not actually a big fan of shoving nitroglycerin in the body feeling. Everything, you know, to that extent. Um, yeah. and that's when we discovered things like pickles and top ramen, <laughs> um, that can help. And sometimes it just needs a friend or someone to sit by and, and watch. And that's the hardest thing. Um, I know it. I got to go through it. And I've never, it, it, it always hurts me having to make other people watch that and go through it and be powerless. Like, don't call the ER. They're just going to screw it up. And ambulance can't do anything. Um, those are the hard things about about these attacks and about vasospasms. Kyle, how, and how often are you having them still? I've been having, so I, I have very few now, but this started, geez, 10 plus 15 years ago now at this point. And when, um, when it was when it was at at its peak, was it happening in like monthly? Every day. Oh no, multiple times a day. Oh wow! So at night, here's the worst. Like because it's an over exaggeration. During like sports, like in a finish line was real scary because I go from up here to down here, oxygen, and the body's like, okay, we don't need as much blood flow. Back off, right? Well, it would overdo that, and it would just collapse and shut down, and I would like collapse in the finish areas. Um, you know. Don't have time to finish to tell you a little Hawaii story, but the one time I died, I flatlined in Hawaii and I've been a med tent in the finish area to, at a half Ironman. But at night, the weirdest thing is you, you expect to hear that out of an Ironman, right? Out of a sporting event, having attacks. The worst attacks I have, and these are the ones I still kind of get sometimes, are at night, end of the day, sitting on the couch, watching TV, you're coming down, right? You're unwinding from a day. and it used to be almost spooky like clockwork. You turn the TV off that last bit of stimulus and I'd be out. I'd have an attack because the body, like we really, it's going down. It doesn't need a lot of blood flow. It doesn't need, and then suddenly it's like, okay, we're, you know, you can turn the thermostat off at this point and it would just shut it completely down. Um, and that would be out for an hour or two hours sometimes, sometimes even more, um, you know, and then it's kind of crawling back 
upstairs to the bedroom to crawl into bed. Um, those are the hard ones. Um, and there's no real way around that. You can't just, you know, the joke is I'm like, I'm like uh, Jason Statham and Crank, right? <laughs> right, right. I was, I was <laughs> literally thinking about it. As long as the adrenaline's going, as long as things are, are steady state, I'm good. That's it's the, it's the deviations. It's the ramping up too fast that causes them, or it's the dropping off that causes them. Um, it's literally you know, I said, be in a grocery store. If I open the fridge section, a cold blast could trigger it. Um, and, uh, and that's just, you know, dealing with it in places like that in public, it's, it's hard. It's about dignity. And that's, I'll wrap this up with uh, kind of back to the tribe. One of the things that I want to thank some of my friends with, more than anything for maintaining and giving my dignity through all of this. I had a friend, Steve, who we used to be out on a bike ride or, or during cycle cross and I'd have an attack and he was real good at figuring out whether I was done or whether he needed to put me back on my bike and get me going again and get the demand back up. <laughs> and he jokes me, Oh, is he okay? He's like, Oh yeah. He's just having a heart attack. He's good. You probably want to get That's going because so he's going to catch your ass in about five minutes once he gets back on his bike. So, or, you know, I'll be coming around on the cycle cross lap and suddenly I'm coming in and I'm not good. And he's just like, and if I'm like that, he's just like, is this a beer hand up or am I grabbing you off? And he would just literally snatch me off my bike, step me in the lawn chair, <laughs> put a beer in my hand, just for looks, grab my bike and sit down there. Because, and a, because, like because a lot of the attack is just letting you and deal with Steve the attack. And, and so, and not, and just kind of, being there for you physically, like somebody's right next to you. That's so sweet. And and anybody you can you can take you can take things. It's not, it doesn't always work, and, and there's always bad days, like we talked about earlier, right? But but part of it's also sometimes just owning and finding ways to normalize whatever the condition the, the situation is, right? Love it. I think that's that's that is that is the um, the message right there. Yeah. All right. What, yeah, what I'm trying right. to do? He's, <laughs> that right. is the. That is uh, the. Okay. What's Nick gonna say? That is the message. Very good, Nick. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad we waited for you. All right. All right. All right. Well, if you want it. You. Want... <laughs> By the way, as oh you can my tell, God. we bust each other's balls too. <laughs> Kyle, we. You were such a great guest. We have to have you back on again whenever you want to come back, and you whenever whenever you talk about any more of the charities or the communities that you're involved with, please come back. You were such a such a pleasure. Oh yeah, you guys are a lot of fun, and I love this format. Like you guys are great because you, we need more things like this talking about serious issues, but not under the the pristine like oh she's with the, the, the you know that that somber. You know, we, we literally sterile, could not do. Word. We literally sterile, could I'm not sure. do it like that. We're not. Like, we're not smart enough to do it like. Right. <laughs> you guys were awesome with that. Like this is one of the best interviews that I've ever I've but ever had the privilege of doing. Oh, thank you so much. No, you guys are great. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about this topic, download Fibo. Fibo is a condition management platform that gives you personalized access to manage your medical journey. It's essentially the one-stop shop for all of your health management needs. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.